What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Barbells and Trails podcast. I'm your host, Brett, back with episode 29. Welcome to the start of November. It is November 2nd. We're here, and this episode is all about this book, Thirst, by Scott Harrison. I'm going to go through basically what this book is, what it means to me, what it's about, and... um, I might be asking you guys for something closer to the end of the video, and I hope you guys stay to listen and are willing to to help. So, thirst. I don't know why. I did throw that. Okay, thirst. What is thirst? Thirst is a book about the life story of Scott Harrison and the background behind how he created his nonprofit nonprofit charity water and how his life had changed how it had taken him down the path to create the company he has today and it's a very harrowing journey with everything he did and kind of crazy considering his background and um, where he came from and how he basically turned his life around to create something so wonderful and have such a large impact on millions of people so let's get into it at a young age scott was living and i think growing up in new jersey with his angelic christian parents they weren't christians at first and they kind of developed into that um as they grew closer to god and realized that they they needed a, a larger calling it ended up being a very important journey in their life and it's probably what helped kept that family together. At a young age, he basically had to take the role of being the parent. And instead of his mother or father taking care of him, he had to take care of his mother. The reason being that his mother developed a very weak immune system. At a young age, they moved into this house, older home. And realized something was wrong. His mom ended up getting migraines every day, splitting headaches, weak, fatigued. His dad spent almost over a year trying to diagnose and figure out what was wrong with his wife. From going to environmental uh, pollutant conferences and trying to figure out what could possibly be causing this between uh, any old... um, building material like formaldehyde uh, or lead or anything, anything that could possibly be contaminating the home. Had the gas company come out, look for leaks, all sorts of stuff. It took over a year as her health and everything dramatically declined and nothing seemed to get better. They tried everything. His mom could barely stay in the house and finally his father had one of his friends come over to take a look at their furnace and it turns out that there was a leak right out of the pipe and she was actually being carbon monoxide poisoned without ever realizing it for almost a year they ended up going to the hospital finally knowing what what was wrong with his mother and they did a blood test typically people with monoxide poisoning don't want to have uh 
oh, is it a monoxide level in their blood of over 23% or 23? Because after that is a very high risk of cardiovascular or a cardiac arrest. And his mom's blood ended up being 26%. So she had been dealing with such a heavy toll from this carbon monoxide poisoning for over a year. It completely wrecked her body. And because of that, it basically destroyed her immune system. So he ended up having to take the role of the parent in the sense of having to do chores and clean house and try to take care of his mother. They they had to end up making and designing ways to come into their home um, to basically de uh depollute themselves from the outside world because certain fumes scents chemical smells and all these other stuff would make his mom's immune system flare up and her have headaches migraines and fatigue so he had to basically learn to take care of his mother and take care of the home at a very young age the main reason him and his father were not affected by the monoxide poisoning were he, they were both gone the majority of the day besides basically the evenings and sleeping where his mom was inside and at home most of the time so she was home almost 24 7 and was the one that got the blunt of the effects from this carbon monoxide poisoning sadly there was nothing they could have done when it came to the company they tried to sue the company did not hardly uh i guess reimburse them for anything later on him and his father actually ended up doing an ad and turned out for a, a, a ad company and it turned out that ad ended up being for the company that was in charge of those gas lines so ironically they were promoting the same company that kind of ruined their family it was it was a very different way way of life for them, and at, at a young age, his parents were very very angelic Christians, and he actually was going to a very small school Christian school, basically in the basement of this church, and once he got to a certain point and his he got older, he developed that teenage angst that I feel like we all do, and. He got tired of the small town Christian classes where basically the teachers were uh, VHS tapes is what it sounded like. And finally he ended up going to his local public high school, which was funny considering when he was at the Christian school, he was the rebel, he was the bad boy, he was the, the punk and when he went into school, he, there was no comparison. He was still that good Christian boy in comparison to everyone else at this public school. He realized actual niches in the large populace between the jocks and the punk rock bands and uh, cheerleaders, academics, goth, all this, all this stuff. And why he was in high school and in this public high school is actually where he developed his love for music. As he developed his love for music, he actually joined a band somehow almost spontaneously just asking an older classman 
uh, or telling an older classman that he played keyboard when he overheard them talking about needing a keyboard player. Ended up being in this band for years, and that's actually what got him out of his small town. After he graduated, he decided not to go to college, because every college his parents wanted to send him to were some Christian private schools, and he was just not about it. He was tired of the rules, he was tired of the limits, and he wanted to do what he wanted when he wanted, and that's exactly what he ended up doing. After graduating high school, he moved to New York and worked on his band, or worked with his band for years, being a promoter, trying to get CDs to people, and doing a bunch of other stuff. While he was in New York, he actually ended up becoming a nightclub promoter. He realized that all he had to do was sell, sell people, get people in, sell, sell a 50 bottle, $50 bottle of champagne for $500 for a good time to people that come into the door. And he realized it was a good way to make money. And he got into the nightlife. He ended up being in the nightlife for almost 10 years. He ended up doing a lot of drugs, and at one point he just felt numb, dull, wore out, burnt out, realized he didn't feel like he had a purpose in life. And at the age of 28, things just started going downhill. He didn't have that drive. He didn't want to be a part of the stuff he was doing. He, he was tired of the cocaine. He was tired of the drinking. He was tired of smoking two, three packs of cigarettes every day. His body was getting worse and worse because of all the partying, staying up till eight in the morning, partying all night. And eventually it just really, really got to him. And he ended up basically finding God and actually getting into Christianity just a little more. And slowly but surely rekindled his faith. It still took him quite some time before he got out of the nightlife, and he'd be quite surprised what actually ended up being his motivation to leave. And it actually ended up being a scenario where he was at a, a club one night with a buddy, a business partner of his, and a promoter kept hounding his friend for a $100 tip. And at one point, he got pissed, told the bouncer off, ended up calling the owner of this nightclub and telling them to fire this bouncer because he was so pushy and aggressive. Turns out that bouncer was actually an ex-con, and that ex-con knew where he lived. The next day, he heard from his business, that same business partner that he that man that bouncer that he got fired was looking for him and he had a gun he ended up staying at his girlfriend's house hiding away uh, I think he might have went home for a time being or if not he at least left town he eventually did get the bouncer's phone number and tried to explain his situation and apologize and gave him job references and put him in put in a good word for, for him so he could finally get a job but at the same time, I think in the back of his mind, he was worried worried that this guy could still come for him. So for the next month, he actually took a road trip up north through the northeast, through New England area in, in the northeastern United States. And while he was away, he ended up staying at a bunch of little hotels, traveling through these small towns, and 
he realized that he needed to do something. He realized he had hardly no money to his name in the 10 years he's done the nightlife, and he just needed something different. He needed to give himself to a better cause. He needed to give himself a purpose that was that was worth something. And in that process, he ended up applying to almost every major charitable organization you can think of. Any single one. He, uh, I couldn't even name them all. But he put in applications to all these companies and waited for responses. Took him weeks because as people looked into him and his background, not a lot of charities and nonprofits wanted to work with a ex-nightclub promoter and not the greatest reputation for a charitable organization until one finally said that they would possibly take him and if he would take the job that they had rules that he had to follow so he had to end up falling back in line to the thing he originally hated he ended up regressing in the sense of wanting that change wanting something different and he's like maybe structure and rule is what i actually need in my life at this moment so he decided to take it it was actually going to cost him 500 dollars a month to donate almost a year of his life to this charity but he was happy to have someone to even take him. He was happy for the opportunity. And the company he ended up going with was Mercy Ships. Mercy Ships was an organization that was started, I believe, in the 1970s, where they take these old cargo ships and reconvert them into hospital boats. And then take these boats to remote places around the world, near coastal cities, to provide aid to countries that just don't have good enough medical care and resources and so he was going to be the chief photographer and storyteller to basically capture the experiences and stories throughout the ship during his time and on his first trip he ended up going to a country he had never heard of liberia during this time i believe this was in the early 2000s he went to Liberia right after they ended their civil war. It's a country that used to be very close to the Americas. Their flag is almost identical to ours. It is a majority English-speaking country with a very, very rough economic place, economic structure. Within the first day of getting there, they had over 5,000 patients waiting to be screened, and they only had 1,000 surgical slots to be filled and scheduled. So they set up these screening processes, they set up all these people, and they slowly screened everybody. The main thing that this company focused on was tumors, facial tumors, facial d disformalities when it came to either growths cleft lips, and a bunch of other stuff. They also helped with orthopedics, eyes, and a bunch of other illnesses that are very common in these places. And within the first day, they probably screened over a thousand people. One of the first kids he saw was a young man with a tumor that was the size of a volleyball on the side of his face. And he had to take these, these pictures and screenings and sadly, they couldn't even say yes to all these people. Depending on some of the situations, they 
could only take tumors if they were benign. They could not take them and treat people if they were cancerous. And so there was many people they ended up having to turn away. By the end of the day, thousands had to leave. And between witnessing all the pain and suffering and all these people that wanted hope and help from these doctors, he Scott ended up being very overwhelmed. And by the end of the day, considering everything he had witnessed, he broke down crying, witnessing the sorrow and the pain of all these people and wishing he could do more. And the doctors that he met there, one of them in particular, Dr. Gary, who was a doctor that don't wanted to volunteer for a year and ended up spending 30 years on these ships. I believe he's still there today, or at least in the time that I think he wrote this book. And he told him that you got to focus on the hope and the lives they're going to be able to change because there is so much that you can't help everyone. And it, it crushed him on the inside to turn so many people away. He ended up spending a lot of time there. He ended up spending a lot of time with the patients. He happened to, at uh, one point, on his time with Mercy Ships, go out to see these remote villages throughout the country, picking up patients, taking patients home, doing all this stuff. And it was the first time he actually witnessed issues with the water. And seeing these ponds and rivers and the the sources of water people were using because there there was a division in mercy ships that actually was building a few wells here and there for a select group of people. And so he kind of got to witness these hand dug wells 30 feet below six men digging extreme backbreaking work. But he also was able to see a lot of good. He was actually able to save one man's life probably in particular. He happened to be taking another man back to his village and came across this this small, uh, I think it was what would be considered a little convenience store, when some man told him about a fisherman that had a tumor. And out of curiosity, they, they wanted to track him down. They actually ended up finding him on his way back from the ocean, and his tumor was probably one of the largest Scott said he had ever seen. He felt so so hurt to see a man so broken considering he could hardly talk let alone breathe and eat that it was such a challenge for this person to even live and so he kind of made an empty promise saying that they would be able to help without even realizing it and he told him that the next day he would come back after dropping this man off at his village to pick him up and take him to the mercy ships mercy ship to hopefully fix his issue and remove his tumor luckily he picked him up the next day got him back explained the situation to dr gary and they sat him down for a screening took a biopsy of the tumor and it was thank god it was benign and they were able to schedule him for surgery sadly though the man was probably only i think they said about 70 pounds and because of that his blood and body was so weak that they had to give him at least two weeks to kind of recover, recoup, and try to put on a little weight so he had enough strength to make it through surgery. And he actually ended up staying on the ship through Christmas, and Scott and him 
ended up creating a decent bond. While Scott was actually on the ship, he was not only taking pictures and trying to basically um, capture all these moments from from these from the field he was taking pictures of all their experiences from mercy ships he was taking pictures of before and after pictures of patients he he not only was doing that but he was writing stories of particular people or situations that he was involved in and learned so he him and harris which ended up being the man he found at the village was ended up creating quite a bond he said even after a lot while learned to understand his form of muffled english and watch Shrek with him, which he very much enjoyed. And uh, and luckily, they were able to perform the surgery. And there was no issues. And Harris had actually asked them to let him keep the tumor so he could really show it how it felt and use it as a punching bag after he woke up after surgery. Uh, sadly, <laughs> the nurses did not allow this. So he personally asked the nurses if he could take it to the incinerator and before throwing it into the fire, he yelled at the tumor for causing Harris so much harm. It took him a few weeks to recover, but shortly down the line, Scott was able to then take him back to his own village for a reunion. Everybody was so impressed to see the dramatic change in Harris and that he was actually going to be able to live a, a normal life he was going to be able to eat and it was actually shortly after his surgery he t actually talked to dr gary and dr gary said that if we did not bring him in he probably only had a few months to live he was either going to starve to death or suffocate so slowly but surely scott was realizing the impact he was having on all these people's lives and that he did have to focus on hope and not have a famine mindset during his time on the mercy ships he was able to witness so many miraculous changes to these people's lives he he witnessed kids being able to basically change and not become outcasts he after all these surgeries and you you see it in the before and after pictures the joy in these people's faces because in a culture like this most in in, in liberia most of these people are banished almost they're outcasts of the community that people believe that the reason they have these are because of curses and because of that most people are actually threatened to be killed and to be able to make such an amazing impact on these people's lives it's able to change their whole social interactions with everybody making them not feel different making them not feel isolated and bringing joy to these children and even these adults. And it was just such an amazing story. He actually ended up ended up serving a second term with Mercy Ships and going back to Liberia the next year. In between his time, between his trips to Liberia, he actually set up a fundraiser for Mercy Ships. I think it cost the company twenty to $30,000 to promote, and he was able to raise $90,000 for the company. And the way he did it, he did what he knew best. He threw a party. He promoted all this stuff and slowly but surely put these galleries together using all the stories and the photos and all these different things he was able to create to create a gallery in New York and ended up raising that nine. 
$90,000 for Mercy Ships. It was on his second trip to Liberia he actually met two doctors that had that had volunteered to basically work in all these different hospitals around Africa to help help train, teach, and perform surgeries that some people aren't eligible to do. One man was from America and the other one was from Britain. And as they were talking, they talked about the stuff they did at Mercy Ships. And these doctors were like, it's amazing the work you guys are able to do. But he's like, the amount of money you guys are putting in to the operations of keeping a ship running these generators, supplying all this stuff, food, everything. He's like, you might as well just build a new hospital. But the thing that first caught Scott's attention to realize what the main issue might be is that these doctors were talking about how overwhelmed the hospitals are. And they said the main thing is the water. He said you could dramatically change the amount of people that end up in hospitals because of disease, sickness, illnesses, parasites, tumors, anything, just from having clean water. He said almost 53% of the people in Africa that end up in the hospitals are preventable all from a clean water source. And at the time, it blew Scott's mind. He didn't believe them. He didn't think it was really true. He's like, there's no way that changing that could have such a dramatic effect on how many people ended up in hospitals. And it wasn't year till a couple, at least a year later that he realized the full effect of it when he was able to look into it himself. That fact would be the thing that then sparked what would then become charity water. What Scott ended up discovering is that dirty water is actually responsible for more deaths in the world than all forms of violence, including war. At the moment, almost 771 million people lack access to clean water. That's almost 1 in 10. And it's such an amazing fact because it's something that's so vital to life and it's the foundations of health. And it's something I never totally thought about for a long time. And neither did he. Why exactly did Scott end up choosing water as his main focus? He actually started the company as Global Charity Inc. And he realized that he wanted to do everything. Charity health, charity shelter, charity food, charity water. And he ended up talking to Dr. Gary and he said, Take one thing and focus on it. What would have the largest impact? Change one thing first and then move on to everything else. And water ended up being what he chose. Part of it was the, the statement that the doctor told him years prior. And the impact that water has is crazy. Like I said, nearly 1 in 10 people worldwide or twice the population in the United States are without clean water. The majority live in isolated rural areas and spend hours every day walking to collect water for their family. Not only does walking for water keep children out of schools or take up time that parents could be using to earn money, but water often carries diseases that can make everyone sick. But access to clean water means education, income, and health, especially for women and children. As it comes to health, 
Diseases from dirty water kill more people every year than all forms of violence. 43% of those deaths are children under the age of 5. Access to clean water and basic sanitation save over 16,000 lives every week. Not only that, but clean water and having the access to clean water can save time. Each day, women in sub-Saharan Africa spend a total of 16 million hours collecting water. Access to clean water gives communities more time to grow food, earn an income, and go to school, all of which fight poverty. Clean water can also help with education. Clean water helps keep kids in schools, especially girls. Less time collecting water means more time for class. Clean water and proper toilets at schools mean teenage girls don't have to stay home for a week out of the month. And in general, having clean water allows women empowerment. Women are responsible for 72% of the water collected in sub-Saharan Africa. When a community gets water, women and girls get their lives back. They start businesses, improve their homes, and take charge of their future. And the question is, and the question that Scott started was, how exactly are you going to be able to tackle the water crisis? And this is basically what they decided to do. They decided that they would work with local experts and community members members to find the best sustainable solutions for each place where they work. Whether it's a well, piped system, bio sand filters, or a system for harvesting rainwater. And every water point we fund, our partners coordinate sanitation and hygiene training and establish a local water committee to help keep water flowing for years to come. The stories they talk about when they did end up setting up these water committees was where maybe the community, everyone paid 50 cents a month to a fund for the water community tre- or water committee treasury so that if anything happened to the wells or the or in any of the water collecting systems that were used if anything happens to them if anything breaks they have the ability as a community to then fund to make sure that it's still operational as for when he started charity water he had no clue what he was doing at the time he was living on his brother or his brothers Sorry, not his brothers. He was living on his best friend's couch, the one that he was a nightclub promoter with. And him and Lonnie, a woman that he was working with during Mercy Ships, he was able to convince to come help him. And they spent hours and hours working 100-hour weeks working on trying to get this charity off the off the off ground. And he actually used his 31st birthday as the catalyst in 2006. 2007 I think actually my no six 2006 sorry and the way he did it was on his birthday he threw a party and he charged a $20 entry fee and by the end of it he had an open bar sponsored by the club and all these other things and he was able to raise $5,000 the thing that changed people's lives was he took that $5,000 to build three wells I think it was build two wells and fix a well and then he sent pictures and the story to about that thing, about about the impact to the 200 or so people that was at this party. And people were so surprised. They were so happy to get these emails because they, they had don't realize where that money went. They thought that they were just paying a, a walk-in fee. They didn't realize that this money was going to change people's lives. And it surprised people. 
And it was when he started that he set three pillars for the charity that would end up becoming the foundations for the charity and how it's ran today. Those three pillars were trust and the 100% rule, proof, and inspire. And in each of those, it ended up creating how Charity Waters ran as a whole. The 100% rule is that he decided that 100% of all the charity donations would go to developing clean water projects around the world. He did not want people to end up distrusting his charity because he found out that almost 43% of Americans don't trust charities, and he wanted to change that. So 100% of anything you donate to Charity Water goes straight to developing water projects around the world. And he decided that he was going to try funding the back-end stuff in different ways, other sponsors, other people to donate, and he figured it out along the way. Number two was he wanted to show proof. Most charities don't show the work they're doing. They don't show the people that are donating the impact they're having on other people. And he decided that he wanted to create a bond and actually show the people what, what they were doing with their money. So they would set GPS GPS coordinates at all the places they developed projects, sent pictures, stories from communities, and sent them out in stories and emails to anyone that was donating and funding water projects. And it allowed people to connect with the people they were actually helping. Not only that, but he wanted to inspire. He got tired of seeing the guilt-tripped commercials of people with kids in Africa starving. And he's like, it works. It really does. And guilt-tripping people will get money. But he's like, I don't want that. He's like, I want to inspire people to make a difference. I want to inspire people to change people's lives. I want to inspire people to donate, to hopefully donate more often than once. He wanted people to change the world. He wanted people to realize the, the big issue that the water crisis really is. And he wanted to change people's perspectives on the whole situation. And when it comes to starting a new charity, it was not easy for him. Throughout their, now it would be 15 years. Or yeah, yeah, 15 years. They had a lot of issues. And in the early stages, the 100% rule ended up being very challenging for them. They actually became very close to bankrupt. And for almost over a year, they were on the brink of shutting down the company. They were raising money. They were doing amazing. But on the back end, he was struggling to pay expenses. He was struggling to pay payroll. Slowly but surely, the company definitely grew. Within the first year, that they were able to raise $1.8 million to clean water. And that's amazing. For a first year of a nonprofit, $1.8 million raised is absolutely ridiculous. And people believe that they caught a lot of breaks early on. And he's like, well... You also got to realize that I got a lot of no's. He's like, I asked so many people that when those yeses came up, they had an amazing impact on their their company and they had a lot of issues. And he actually struck gold when he happened to, in the 2000s, email many tech leaders. He emailed Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Bill Gates. I don't know if he said Elon Musk, but he emailed a bunch of people. And one of the people he happened to email was the CEO and creator of uh, Bebo, which is a networking app in Britain at the time. And that year, that man and his wife sold the company 
for $850 million. And the man ended up emailing him back and wanted an interview. So he pitched him for 45 minutes. One of the first things the guy told him was he didn't trust charities. So Scott had to try pitching him and changing his mind. It took him quite some time. And then one night he got a text message from him and said, hey, I just wired some money. Hope your bank details were correct. Let me know if there's any issues. Scott ended up opening his bank account for the company and he saw a pending $1 million into their account. He freaked out because at that point he said he had $113 in the expense account and he was worried that they were going to have to close their doors. They had $81,000 sitting in their water fund, but he wasn't going to take a single penny out of that because it would go against all his morals. He ended up calling everyone he knew. He called his mom. He called any the girls and people that w- was working with him. He called business partners to tell them the great news, and he couldn't believe it. He had not realized how much stress he had been carrying on him as he was trying to run this charity and the stress it, it was taking on him to basically try keeping the doors open. With this funding, he was able to keep it open for over a year, and at that point, he was trying to figure out ways to basically change the way they looked at things. Not only did they almost go bankrupt, but they also ended up with lawsuits. Within the first couple years, there was one company that was able to raise almost $700,000. They were going to match $500,000 to donate to clean water. Within the first years of trying to develop this company, they had issues. They didn't always have the greatest partners in the countries to develop and build these wells and one time they went to take these people to see the wells they were able to build and fund and they messed up the plate for the name not only that but several of the wells were broken they realized that they weren't going to use that partner anymore to develop wells in Uganda and they ended up using that money and partnering it with someone else And it was that next day he happened to get an email from the people that donated suing them for false advertisement, uh, pretty much. Well, it was a basket full of of lawsuits, basically saying that they did not say what they were going to do. And he got very worried. Good enough, he talked to his attorney and his attorney said, you're a non-profit. You don't got to make promises and keep what you do with the money because there's no set contract when people donate. Even then, they, they had to mediate for almost a year, and it took an amazing toll on him. He actually got the courage to send an email out to all his people on the board, people that donated, and let them know what was going on, that they had been dealing with a lawsuit for almost over a year, and they were struggling to get through. At one point, they had to mediate, went to a federal judge, and the judge said, why are you guys here? sent them to a judge and said, you will figure this out today. He ended up signing a contract to actually give a million dollars to a different charity to get this lawsuit swept under the rug and closed. He was tired of all the BS and he wanted it to be finished. Not only that, but he almost got burnt out. Uh, It was on his ninth year, he almost wanted to quit as CEO. Even though every year, Every year, they they had almost exponentially grown their company. They had almost exponentially grown their company. 
from 2007, they had $1.8 million donated to 08. They had 6.3 to 2009. They had 8.6 in 2010, 15.8 million to 2011, 27.1, and projected at that time in 2012, 33 million. And on this ninth year, they actually went backwards and it hurt him. And he actually was almost burnt out and wanted to hire another CEO and was almost tired of it, said he was not good enough. When one day he was on the phone with his dad and he's like, did you break your morals as a company? Did you not do what you set out to do? Did you fail as a CEO? Did you help people? Did you create more wells? Did you optimize your company? He's like, you got to look at other things than just the amount of money you raised. He's like, you were able to do amazing things. So don't look at it just in the numbers. That's one thing he had to realize, and he completely, Scott completely changed his perspective on how he looked at what the charity did, and he was able to realize that they've had such an amazing impact over the last year, and that he's not a failure, he's just learning, and there's stuff he's still figuring out. There's stuff that CEOs don't do for a long time, and he realized, why am I trying to give up on something when I'm almost at the 10-year mark? He's like, I've almost made it to 10 years. Why am I going to quit now? And he didn't. During his time at Charity Water, he spent many, many years traveling. Almost on 40, or it went from 40 flights a year to almost 90 flights a year across the country to get sponsorships, to get people to donate. Not only that, but also flights to Africa to talk to NGOs. Um, and not only that, but help build wells and witness and capture all this information and bring back stories and one story that he happened to learn about was one that kind of changed his life and the way he looked at water and he didn't realize he realized that this had such an amazing impact on people's lives but he happened to hear a story in Ethiopia of a young 13 year old girl that ended up taking her life after she dropped a pot of water after a long day of hauling it it happened to be a one-off story and he ended up sending people to track it down to see if it was real he went and spent almost a week at this village in the middle of nowhere in ethiopia almost a nine mile hike from the nearest road and he lived there for a week he talked to the mother he interviewed her she her mother and she was 13 years old at the time she had to travel almost all day to get water it's like a two to three hour walk and it took hours to fill up waiting in line and a two and three hour walk back. She wasn't able to go to school like she wanted. She was limited by her community and she couldn't necessarily do the things she wanted. And one day it, it broke her. And on her way back, not far from the village, she happened to slip and shatter the clay pot that was holding the water. After all day and all the work and everything she's done and and the amount of time she's given up to get water and realized that she felt like she let her family down. She ended up hanging herself from a near tree. And it it shocked the community for one, but it shocked Scott. Because it made him realize how important that their work really is. And how much that it's actually changing these people's lives. And the impact of not having clean water has.
and because of the stories and the things he's been able to witness and, and the people he's been able to see change change from everything and the work he's been able to do, he's been very innovative with his company. He's probably one of the most modern, on top of it, charities that I've ever seen. And some of the ways he'd do stuff and raise money was throw a charity ball at the end of the year and invite all these people out, try telling stories and show their impact and get people involved to raise and donate money. Some years they raised quite a bit of money. One year he told the story of the life of a child in Africa where he had 400 guests actually put on VR headsets. And this was, I believe, in 2014. And that night they ended up raising a million dollars because people were taking off these headsets after an eight-minute video basically to show the life of a young child in Africa taking off this headset in tears. And it moved people to want to change lives. Not only that, but in 2016 on their 10-year, he had created a charity ball like no other. They ended up having tablets for every person, went to a village and interviewed 400 people because they wanted to connect the people that were at the ball to the people on the other side of the world. They found anything that related people to others. Are you a teacher? Well, they're a teacher. Are you pregnant? We have someone that's pregnant in this village. Uh, do you like hiking? This man likes hiking. And some way found ways to connect the person with them. Had a tablet at each table and was able to connect people to an actual person. So they decided to do that. And he talked to these people, had them read the stories and get connected to them. And then said, I need $12,000 to build a well for them. It's like it would take $20 from each and every one of you. It might have been 30 And everybody was like, $30? That's okay. Okay, that's nothing. I guess we could do that. It's like, I want to see how quickly we can raise the $30. And behind him on these big flat screen TVs, he had the faces of all these people all in black and white. And every time people donated, all the pictures slowly changed to collar. And they raised the $12,000 within a little over a minute. It's like, all right, well, now we'll be able to change this community. It's like, how about I show you guys right now? And they had actually set up a live streamed event in 2016 across the world. And they were able to watch them finish drilling this well live as this community saw this clean water pumped out of the ground as they finished these wells to change this community's lives and immediately change and show the impact that these people are actually having on these communities. And then he told them, I want to raise $3 million tonight. And I know I have someone that will back and match a million dollars if we can raise two. How much money can we raise? give you 15 minutes and they sat there with the live tally of the money watching it pour in people donating and over and over again 10,000 15,000 50,000 60,000 20,000 and within 14 minutes was able to raise three million dollars and I think that at the time was the most they had ever raised for a charity ball that might be different now but this book was written several years ago 
Not only that, but he's very innovative with his ads. He was able to get a hold of the director from Hotel Rwanda and created a PSA about, I think now, 14 years, not 14, but I think 10 years ago, where they actually had an actress and they created a representation of what it would be like if there was no power in New York and people had to walk blocks and blocks all the way to the pond in Central Park to then give their kids dirty water for their lunch or with their lunch. And they were able to end up creating almost a two, what a PSA that would have costed almost $250,000 for only $5,000 between people donate equipment and their time, hiring extras. And then not only that, but they were willing to allow millions of people to see it put on, on commercials just by communicating and talking to the companies and able to promote something very cheaply that probably ended up changing tens of thousands of people's lives, if not more. Now, what kind of impact have they actually been able to have as as a company? Well, let me tell you. In the time that they've been in business, since 2006, they have been able to build... 111,709 water projects around the world, allowing almost 15.5 million people to have access to clean water in 29 different countries. And as you can see, they have a map that shows each, each and every location that they have built wells throughout the world. This is their proof factor. You can click on these different places and see the impact that these wells have had. This well in Camp Chick serves almost 700 people. Rehabilitated well, so that means they were able to fix one that was already there. And it tells you the story and maps out the place. They have been able to have such an amazing impact on so many communities that they realized that sustainability is almost one of the most important things. And at one point in time, almost 40% of all the wells created by water projects and water companies, water companies, water projects and water funds ended up not working and being broken. Charity Water was able to change that where they've actually been able to help train maintenance teams with GPS trackers and have been able to send out people to go and fix wells and train communities how to fix wells. At one point, wells weren't going to be able to work because of possibly a $5 O-ring that was messed up, but because they didn't know how to fix it and didn't know how to get it, people went without water, clean water yet again, and they changed that. They went from a 60% average of working wells to a 90% average in Ethiopia alone. And 10% that aren't fixed or aren't working are in the process of being fixed all the time. One thing that they had to do eventually was they developed their own form of sensors. Sensors that they used to then change and track the amount of water that was flowing in these communities. Keep clean water flowing is their critical mission. So they developed a comprehensive remote monitoring system using cutting edge internet 
of Things sensors and cloud computing technology to equip local leaders with real-time data of water system performance. They ended up developing their own sensors to put on projects all around the world so they can track the amount of water flow to know if wells are going dry or not pumping as much water as they should. So they can actually get live insights of sensors and wells that are not working properly so they can send out technicians to go fix them as soon as possible. They had to develop this technology on their own and they've been able to have such an amazing impact. Not only that, but in 2021, they were able to have a record year where they were able to raise $105 million, build 27,159 water projects, and almost served and gave access to clean water to 1,985,000 people. It was the record year and the first year they've raised over $100 million, and they hope to grow that impact. One of the ways they did that was they developed a, th a thing that they use called Spring, and that's actually how I was able to find, find Charity Water. I saw a video that they had posted. It was actually an ad at first online two years ago, and I just happened to be curious. And I, I looked into it. I looked into it. I watched the video and it told the backstory. It told me the stuff I'm telling you guys today. And it ended up changing my life because I was able to listen to their story and realize the impact that these people were having. And he realized that he wanted to make a big difference. And the way to do that was continuously find people that are willing to donate. So he developed Spring. It is a subscription base for donations. Just like your Spotify, your Apple Music, your Netflix, it is a monthly donation that you give to Charity Water to then donate and change people's lives around the world. It takes about $40 to change and give someone access to clean water. So $20 a month can change six people's lives annually. And that was one way for them to see future projections. And it ended up being a major hit. This was a project they started on their 10th year anniversary. I happened to come across it two years ago. And I signed up for it. I started with only $25 a month. Because at the time, on a very good month and a lot of overtime, I was maybe able to take home $1,000, if that, after taxes. So $25 a month was a decent amount. And I've slowly but surely upped that, and I've loved to have the impact I've had. And I'm going to put a link in the description if you guys would love to go down and donate and, and actually be a part and set up Spring. It doesn't matter how much you donate. If you donate $5, $10 a month, it's going to change someone's life. And I think that this is probably one of the biggest crises we have today when it comes to clean water because it is the basis of everything. One dollar donated to clean water has a economic impact of four in other countries. So it's like, let's make a difference. Let's develop the world. Let's make people have a better living. So click that link below and we, we can possibly change the world. In the past two years, I have been able to donate $1,275 to Charity Water and have an estimated 
impact of changing 31 people's lives. Spring is an amazing thing, and I think it's something everyone could do if they can continuously donate and change people's lives. It's something worthwhile. If you guys are actually interested, I will also leave the link in the description to the spring ad video so you guys can actually see the story and hear it from Scott himself. But I'm about done with today's video, but I at least want to tell you that this month I'm actually setting up a fundraiser till the end of the month. I want to try raising $5,000 for charity water. $5,000 to change as many people's lives as possible. Thanksgiving is at the end of the month, and as someone that's been born in America, I have a lot to be thankful for. I've never had to worry about clean water. I've never had to worry about going hungry. I've never had to worry about shelter, and millions have had not had that ability, and I think that me being a part of this and donating what I've had monthly has had an amazing impact and I'm probably going to donate for the rest of my life because I think that in our lifetime we could see the end of the water crisis and I want to try raising $5,000 by the end of the month because if this is the month of Thanksgiving why not make this the month of giving allow give money to give someone in Africa or so someone around the world the ability to be thankful for clean water something that we're so used to let's let's take our our money the stuff that we work hard for and have such a larger impact on someone else's lives I I've I mean what is that $1,200 gonna do to me I've hardly I didn't even realize it wasn't there and I've been able to possibly change 31 people's lives I think we could probably raise $5,000 by the end of the month, and I really would appreciate it if you guys do. I'm going to have the link at the top of the description, and I don't care if you can donate a dollar, $5, $10, whatever it is, but I'd really appreciate it if you can because I want to make a difference. I want to make a difference in the world, and I think this is just the start, and I think it's something that we can all be a part of. Let's give someone something to be thankful for, because I'm thankful for so much. I hope you guys are willing to donate and want to see the end of the water crisis just as much as I do. And I think we can have such an amazing impact. And let's smash this goal. I, th I think we can do it. So please, if you guys are willing to donate anything, click the link below. As for that, I believe that is the end of today's episode. I hope you guys were able to learn a lot. And if you want to know more, Go on Charity Water's website. Link will be in the description. Watch the spring video and learn everything you can about this charity. Buy the book. Find out things that I wasn't able to tell you about. It was a very amazing story, and I recommend everybody to read it because it's such a, an incredible life story, and this man has, has an impact on millions of people and has changed millions of people's lives. So I hope you guys are willing to change the world just as much as I am. And I'll see you guys all next week.